0: Good morning, church. I bring you greetings from the Diocese of Christ Our Hope and from my wife Sally and me. It's wonderful to be here. I've been here a number of times over the past few years in meetings, but this is my first Sunday morning with you. So thank you for welcoming me, Paul and all of the church. Our diocese is a sister diocese with you in the Anglican Church in North America, but it's also a diocese that shares your DNA of the passion for church planting and mission. So we are a newly formed diocese, but we're not newly together. We've been operating in the East Coast for about 10 years together. As a people committed to spreading the gospel and planting churches, and it's a great privilege for me to be able to serve this diocese and its people. And also, We've shared that together with you. And so we've been friends with Bishop Todd and with his church all along the way. In being formed in a new way in this last year, my mind has been occupied with the development of the Diocese of Christ Our Hope. We established our name and our mission in January of this past year, and we began to build at that time the systems and the structures and the teams that will enable us to fulfill our mission. But throughout this year, I've been even more occupied with the spiritual substance and the reality of who we are. We are the Diocese of Christ, our hope. And therefore we believe we are to be a people of hope on gospel mission in this world. And as soon as I say hope, I wanna assure you, I don't mean wishful thinking or I hope, I hope, I hope. I mean substantial hope that is secured for us in the reality of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, a fixed hope, a hope that is not shaken because we know that the center of human history has been secured. Amen? Christ is alive from the dead. The worst thing has already happened. And guess what? It didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work. And so as people who have the DNA of hope into our lives, First Peter, we read that blessed be God who has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's born into us. The question that's been on my heart all year long is what is that hope and how do we live as a people of hope? But this year, there's been another current that's been flowing along with that passion in me that has been hard to reconcile, and that is the political and social climate of our nation. It has been a chaotic year. Now, I realize and understand that there are some people, I'm sure even in this room, who believe that there is a truly right candidate for president. But even as recently as last week, I read a a, a study and I think it's an accurate study, in which 70% of the people are voting primarily against someone, not for someone, and out of fear of the other alternative. And at the risk of offending anybody who believes that there is truly a right candidate, I think almost everyone in this room would agree that this has been a tawdry and discouraging year from a political process. And just when we thought it couldn't get any worse, it did this last week. It's just been crazy. And more than that, the political process has unleashed forces of anger and fear and division. And coincidentally, this has been a year when racial division has reared its ugly head. In terms of politics and society, I struggle to see any light at the end of the tunnel, and I am not at all anticipating waking up on November 9th in a better place concerning society and politics. Relief that it's over, yes. But any genuine expectation of good, no. As a citizen, how do I stand at this moment? As a bishop, how do I speak into this moment? Because that's part of my responsibility. Well, this is hardly the first time in history that Christians in a particular political environment have no basis for hope in the king or the president or the premier or whoever occupies that role. In fact, what has been exceptional is the idea that Christians can expect the government to have their back in terms of our agenda in this world. That's relatively new, and in fact, even in this country, it's less than a hundred years old that we've begun to believe that the government should be pursuing the agenda of the church. Saint Augustine was right. There is a city of man, and there's a city of God, and they have distinct, separate agendas form far more often than they have overlapping agendas. God speaks about three human institutions in scripture. He speaks of the family, the church, and the state. According to his plan, the state has a very limited role in directly furthering his purposes. It is called by God to ensure justice and to punish or to limit evil. Second, it is called to establish and preserve peace and thereby provide for the family and the church to do its business without being troubled. And then in Psalm 82, There's this cosmic historic mandate to the leaders of the nations to provide for the poor, the needy, the weak, the orphan, the stranger, the helpless. But even in that psalm, God says, none of you are doing it. None of you are fulfilling that mandate. When on occasion, the city of man and the city of God overlap in their agendas, we can be thankful for that. But more often than not, most states are tangled up in their own agendas, and their own self-interest. And they end up opposing the very work that God has given them to do, whether that's on the right or on the left. And most of us would conclude that the situation that we're in is largely chaotic. Well, let me share good news with you today. This is a good news sermon. My hope lies elsewhere. God has given us hope in Jesus Christ. And as I've pondered this, the New Testament books of 1 Peter and Hebrews have informed my study of hope this year, and both of them are crammed with hope. I would encourage you, if you want to follow along, open up your Bibles, Hebrews, for just a moment, and then 1 Peter. Listen to these verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Even as I come to you today, what I prayed before this sermon was from my heart, I need the Lord. But I pray that in the confidence that God welcomes my prayer and responds to my prayer with help in time of need. That is hope. In chapter six of Hebrews, The writer says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This was written to a people who were in persecution, such severe persecution that they were literally considering walking away from the Christian faith in order to save their skin. And he says, hang in there. I call you to hang on to your hope and hold it to the end. Never give it up. He says later on in that chapter that we have fled to refuge, to God for refuge. And we, as we do so, he writes so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. In chapter 10, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. You're a people of hope. Encourage each other to that. Peter wrote his letter similarly to people who were under severe persecution. He himself wrote under the hot breath of Nero about two years before he would be crucified upside down. And it was written specifically to a group of Christians suffering severe persecution in their own local area— but with the hearty approval of Rome from a distance. And as I quoted before, he reads this. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you through Jesus Christ. And then the verse that was read to us earlier this morning from chapter three, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Peter's letter has particularly given me a roadmap for navigating this kind of crazy year. In the first chapter and a half, He deals with the substance of Christian hope. What do we mean when we say that we have hope as Christians? What are we saying we believe? What are we saying the realities are that are true for us? First, there is the hope of final, completed salvation in Christ. That's chapter one, verses one through 13. And I've already read the fact that we're born in hope and we hold on to hope till the end. We stand in the middle of the story of God's redemptive work. We are people who are in a train, a road, a river of salvation from the throne of God unto the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth. We're on that river, and it is God who is taking us there. Hallelujah. And God has guaranteed it. God has secured it. I have a friend named Brandon Walsh, and he said, you know what, a young guy in his 20s, he said, Bishop Steve, I do not have fear. He said, because the worst thing that Satan can do is to destroy. God has the power to resurrect and to create. And at the end of the time, I know the end of the story. And that infects us. Many of us are afraid, anxious, fearful of the moment, fearful of death. One of the dear faithful priests that I work with in our diocese confessed to me personally, Bishop Steve, I have to confess to you, and he said, I'm ashamed to say so, but I'm afraid of death. It's common to many of us. And yet there is this promise that what Jesus is, we will be. And when we look at the resurrected Jesus Christ, we can see ourselves and our future. That is the hope of eternal salvation. Second, we have the hope of personal transformation in this life. So not only are we headed for eternity, we have the hope that we will not always be even in this life the way we are right now, hallelujah. Verse 14 of chapter one, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Most of my life I've read that purely as a command and there is a command there. You be holy because God is holy. So you make the choices of holiness in your own life. It is a command. But what I have only seen this last year is that it's also attached to a promise. You shall be holy for I am holy. It's in your DNA. We've said that several times. Hope is in your DNA. It's from the Father. And holiness is in your DNA. It's from the Father and your DNA will out, is what God is saying. God is at work and he's marshaled his resources of the Holy Spirit and his teaching to encourage us and to help us to walk a road of increasing transformation and holiness. So that sin and temptation that plagues you need not be your story till the end. God will progressively set you free. Now it won't be completed till you see Christ it's only when we see him face to face that we shall be fully like him, but we have the hope of increasing freedom from fear and anxiety, or increasing free, free, freedom from temptation, or increasing love. If you look at yourself in your best and brightest and deepest moments, and you long to be something that you aren't because of Christ, then hold on in hope and keep pursuing that goal. And God will transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit increasingly over the course of your life. Third, we have the hope of a family, the household of faith to share our life with. Chapter one, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, and he goes on, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. And then he says, verse 4 of chapter 2, come as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, in the, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God says, as we come together as the people of God, that we encourage each other and help each other unto this transformation. We're being changed. And there is even a hint that as we come in worship, and a little bit later, we're gonna come to the climax of our worship around this table. As we come as a people of God, God is doing something mysterious and sacramental in our lives to knit us together, to be a living temple and a priesthood to God in the world. So even if you don't know it, God is changing you, and God is changing you together. And He's knitting you together, and people are walking with you in wonderful ways. Thank God we need never walk alone in our journey. And I cannot tell you how many times I would have despaired and given up, and I think turned away if it hadn't been for my wife, who constantly encourages me, and my friends who've come alongside me. But I want to encourage you that God is doing something even greater than you know. One of the friends of mine who's a pastor shared with me a story that i got to share with you because to me, I just think this is such a great, good news, miraculous story. He had a guy in his church who had come back to the church, and he was a little bit awkward with this weekly communion, and he said, you know, why, pastor, it's just going to get old. You know what I mean? I'm going to get bored with this. And, and the pastor said, just give it a year. Just see what happens just come. And about six months into the year, the guy came up to him after church and he said, well, pastor, uh, uh, you know, it's working. (laughs) And my friend said, what what do you, what do you mean it's working? You got to tell me more than, he said, well, let me write to you. So this is what he wrote. It's complicated. First, almost every Sunday, sitting where I do, as people go to the table, I can look forward or across and see men and women I know people who are suffering, carrying burdens, visible or invisible, and I can silently pray for them as I know some of them do for me. Other mornings, I'm desperate, hoping that there will be some magic in the cup, willing to crawl on my knees to the table just in case. Or the sermon just preached may have overwhelmed me with guilt or gratitude, parenthesis, it happens, pastor. (laughs) And this is a tangible way to say, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief are to be reminded that we are one in the Lord. Those folks I revere and those I secretly shake my head at from a great height, all belong to Christ, not to me. His blood covers them just as effectively as it does me. Gentile or Jew, free or slave, fit or fat, MD or welfare mother. Each week, the world erases that from the blackbird of my heart. Each week at the table, Christ patiently writes it back. And I am old, and I now read the obituaries every day, and too often there is a colleague, my latest son is sinking fast, my race is nearly run, and I cringe at what lies ahead. I fear the darkness. But each and every Sunday I hear, stretching all the way back to my childhood, the voice of the pastor, the words of the word, for as often as you drink this bread and Eat eat this bread and drink this cup. You do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It matters. Pastor, I'm sorry I said it so poorly. (laughs) Ha, amazing, huh? God works to transform you as you come together in worship. And then finally, we have the hope of a purpose in life Chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have the hope of having a message to a wounded and broken world. And it's a message contained in what we've already declared as our hope, that there is eternal life that has been given to us through the resurrected Jesus Christ. That there is the hope of personal transformation in this life, that there's a hope of a family. And now that there's a hope of having a message that people need desperately, whether they realize it or not. That is the substance of our hope, brothers and sisters. And then what Peter does is he turns the corner and he says, now, how do you live it out? How do you live as a person of hope in this world? And again, he gives four components of that. First, he speaks about surviving capricious and unpredictable and unjust political leaders. Chapter two, verses 13 and 17, that's encouraging. And then he talks about living Christianly in an oppressive and abusive work environment, verses 18 through 25 of that same chapter, chapter two. And then he teaches husbands and wives how to live a holy and godly and successful and effective fulfilled life, even if your spouse doesn't share your faith. I think it's interesting that he gives six verses of encouragement to wives and one to husbands, six to one ratio. Maybe that's because there's six to one ratio in terms of wives living with unbearable husbands as husbands living with unbearable wives. Can I get a witness on that? (laughs) And then finally he sums it up in verse eight what we've already heard. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Most of us read that and think that he's talking to us as Christians and how we treat one another, but contextually, that's not true. He's already spoken to the church back in chapter two. This is speaking to us as people in the world amongst our neighbors. And he's saying to us, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your extended family, even with those who revile you and scorn you and mock you and look down on you, have sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and humility. No matter what we experience from the world, rather than arousing our defenses, how about a little sympathy instead? How about a little humility instead? After all, We only have hope because we have been given hope. We have nothing but what we have been given. I am a sinner saved by grace. It is when I was the enemy of God that God died for me, Christ died for me, and that's true for you too. So we have nothing but what we have been given. Have some humility about it, have some gratitude, have some mercy toward those whose hope is fully misplaced are completely missing. And they're operating out of a hopeless desperation. Furthermore, we have the the hope of obtaining blessing for all of eternity. He's already told us that in chapter one. We have an inheritance in heaven reserved for us that God himself says is secure for you. You have no fear of your eternal blessing. So be generous, give it away and don't hoard it. This text is the New Testament corollary to the famous passage in Jeremiah 29, when the Jews in exile were told how to live in exile. And if you think about it, these are people who have been ripped away from their homes and their businesses, their place of worship. And it's almost unthinkable for us to put ourselves in that situation. But recently it got stirred up in my mind because our daughter and her husband are owners of a successful restaurant in downtown Raleigh. And they're because of the success, their investors are inviting them to open three other restaurants. And I look at the work that they're doing and the joy and the pleasure of that good, earnest work and good restaurants and all the fun that they're having. And it's wonderful to see my daughter and her family being fulfilled in that good work. Well, what if someday, someday somebody came and ripped you away from it and walked in and claimed it for, its own, for his own, or your home that you live in, or that you were never able to walk into this church again. Well, that's the situation with the Jews in Babylon. And yet what God says to those people, living among those who are scorning them and mocking them and deriding them, he says, settle there, live your life there and pray for the city and its welfare the city that I've sent you to. I sent you there in order to pray and in order to be the people of hope. Well, if that's true, how much more that we should claim to be the same? Because we live on the other side of the resurrection. We know the end of the story. We're salt and light scattered into the darkness. How much more should we be people who are embedded in hope? And so Peter rounds it out and says that there should be such an indomitable hope in you that people inevitably will come up and say, why are you the way you are? Can you please explain to me, knowing what you believe and knowing how much we reject what you believe, how do you still continue to have a smile on your face? I'm not saying that I did a great job of this, but when we first moved into our neighborhood, where we live uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is pretty much, as I understand it, as fully blue as Collins County is fully red, okay? you know. Let's just kind of put that on the table, all right? And the first two significant conversations I had with people in our neighborhood, when they saw my collar, they said, who are you? I said, Anglican pastor, first words out of their mouth. Oh, you must be those people who hate gays. Great opening line. And I said, what, do you know something about me? I don't know. Don't think that's true. Sympathy compassion, understanding. How do I engage? How do I walk that walk as a person of hope? And what God says to me is over the course of your time in that neighborhood, living faithfully to me, I expect that people will eventually come and say, why are you the way you are? How do you do it? What's going on with you? Well, what impresses me about Peter's exhortations are two simple observations. These are eminently practical ways to live out our hope. Take politics, how do we endure on November 9th, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton? How do we survive what we fear? Well, John Calvin, I think there's a couple of things. I think first of all is humility. John Calvin famously wrote, when God wants to punish a nation, he sends them evil rulers. So maybe we need to go, Lord, what do we need to learn here? Our nation has kicked God out of the public square, and we know that. It's determined to marginalize anyone who does not toe the cultural orthodox line. It's determined to silence anyone who speaks prophetically, whether it be against scorched earth or scorched womb or in favor of racial division or whatever the issue may be. If we speak against that, we will be marginalized. And maybe God has said to us, okay, you've made your choice. I'll let you have it as a people. But in that regard, we also have to identify with our own pride and our own sense of rights. And even as sincere followers of Christ, we think we have rights, which are in fact gifts from God. So we demand them rather than say thank you. We claim them rather than receiving them as an opportunity from God. We need to face those things. And that's just the beginning. So maybe humility would be a good way to move into the future. That's very practical. But also in that regard, continue to not despair, continue not to lose hope, continue to seek to bless and pray for our world. When it comes to the workplace, practically speaking, The Lord instructs us in this book, do your work with integrity. Endure sorrow with grace so that if you're treated unjustly, it is never, ever, ever because of your sin. It's never because you precipitated the problem. Never be the cause of what happens to you. Same thing in your home. How do you love? Again, Peter explains it in your neighborhood. Be undeterred in the calling to bring blessing to others with generosity These are practical ways to live as people of hope in this world. And then the other thing that encourages me about his teaching is that it's eminently local. We live in this community that's really big on, you know, farm to table and local produce and all that kind of stuff. And everything is farm to table, farm to table. Well, I think this is farm to table hope. How do we live it in a practical level? This... A couple of months ago, I ordained to the document a woman named Teresa, who lives in the same neighborhood as our daughter and her son, uh, our daughter and her husband. And Teresa's in her mid-50s and she's, you'd never notice her until you got to know her. And her home is the center of hospitality for that neighborhood and she welcomes everybody in, treats everybody with grace, engaged because she's truly interested in the people in her neighborhood, even the gay couples that are there. And they're welcome into her home. And she, she doesn't hide who she is. But with warmth and genuine affection and humility, she welcomes them and engages them over the long haul, not just once or twice. When she's not doing that, she spends her time seeking out people on the margins. She goes to nursing homes that are connected to public housing systems in Southeast Raleigh. She loves shopping at the grocery store, which by statistics is the most violent neighborhood in Raleigh. And I say, Teresa, what are you there for? And she says, not to make a political statement, that's for sure. I'm there to engage people in conversation. I'm there to talk. So I just look for conversation. I look to meet people. And so at her ordination, there were several people who came out of that context that she'd gotten to know so as I was listening to that, I said, Teresa, it sounds like that your life is dedicated to the least of these. And she just smiled and she said, you know, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. It was just an important statement. But it seems like that's true. That's what I love to do. That's local hope. That's a local life of hope. And as I end this sermon, I want to end with three statements of gratitude. The first is that I'm a very grateful to be a fresh call, to be a person of hope in practical and local ways. That's what this text does me, for me, and I hope for you as well. I hope that you hear this as an encouragement to think how you can live this life out. I'm grateful even though that I know few of you personally That you are born again to a living hope This place is full of people whose DNA is hope And therefore I am absolutely sure There are countless stories in this room Just like Teresa's Of people who are living it out in their local community In their local neighborhoods And what I hope and pray that you'll take from this Is the encouragement to tell each other what's going on What are the things that you are doing To bring hope and to live out hope and be encouraged, learn from one another, help each other in that process. And then finally, I am grateful that nothing that happens on November 8th can threaten my hope or prevent me from living as a person of hope for the rest of my life, amen? God is so good. I had no idea what the call of the day was until We read it this morning. May I conclude with repeating the call of the day. Would you pray with me? Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those things that shall endure through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.